Please grab your Bible and turn with me to Romans chapter 13. In my house, currently, we have an almost five-year-old and a two-year-old. And I don't know if I've told everybody yet. I'm kind of bad about telling personal news, but we also have our third baby on the way. Wow. All thanks to Amber. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, my wife's pregnant with our third baby. She's due December 23rd. Merry, Merry Christmas to me. Uh, so please don't just clap, but pray. Um, but, you know, we, we spend a lot of time in my house learning the basics, right? Letters, numbers, colors, shapes. My wife's fantastic about teaching our kids through crafts and books. And, you know, we also want to teach them the basics when it comes to life skills. Amber teaches them things about cooking and gardening and how to safely cross the street. While I teach the really important stuff, like how to tell if leftover pizza is still good to eat. And how to carry in all the groceries at once. And most important of all, how to do the chores I don't want to do. Yes. We also work to teach them the basics of the Christian faith. You know, who God is and what the Bible is about and what Jesus has done. My two-year-old son, he's really into dinosaurs and lions and bears and other things that hurt you right now. And, and for some reason, he thinks, I don't, I don't know where this came from, where this happened, he thinks that Jesus was a bear. And uh, <laughs> tried to help him. You know, recently my wife told him, you know, Jesus, he's, he's fully God, he's fully man, and he was quick to add, fully bear. Uh, so not, we're working on him, we're working on him. But, you know, we also talked to them about how we should live as Christians, about things like serving people like Jesus did, saying sorry, asking for forgiveness, always telling the truth. And you know what I found? As I teach my kids the basics, I am also teaching myself. I am being reminded of some of these simple things that I know by heart, but I often forget to live out. I believe it's important that we all continue to learn and relearn the simple truths about the Christian life. We need to regularly go back to the basics, and be reminded about why these foundational truths are foundational. So this morning, we're going back to preschool Sunday school. You ready? We're going to look at two very simple commands for the Christian life, two commands so simple, I'm willing to bet all of you know them and believe them. Yet, they're two commands that somehow we still can't quite get right. And these aren't new commands. No, for 2,000 years, Christians have been emphasizing these two commands. We know that because Paul included them in his longest and most thorough letter that he wrote. It's a letter to the church in Rome we call Romans. It was written in the first century. And if you've been here with us on Sunday mornings, you know we've been walking through this, this book, this letter, verse by verse, for almost a year now. And we're now in the section of Romans, chapters 12 and 13, that is more practical in nature. Paul's concern here in this section is to explain how the gospel, which he's talked a lot about, should impact the way we live. And that's where we find these two essential commands for Christians. So this morning, let's go back to the basics as we walk through the last part of Romans chapter 13. Look with me now at Romans 13. Let's start with verses 8 through 10. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. 
For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Here's the first command we learn in this passage. One of the most basic things to the whole Christian life, we all know it, but we need to hear it. Number one, walk in love. Christians must love people. Christians must love each other. And just in case you've forgotten how foundational this is to the Christian life, let me jog your memory with some of what the Bible says about our call to love. Let me read some verses. John 13, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. 1 Peter 4, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. 1 John 4, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Colossians 3, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. 1 Thessalonians 4, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Ephesians 4, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And 1 Corinthians 13, so now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Man, there's so much more I could quote. I'm going to stop there. Did you see how essential this is to the Christian life? I don't know. There's, there's many more things at all that are more emphasized and repeated than the simple truth that Christians must love one another. Paul here is building on that theme, but he's got a particular angle of his own here. What's his angle? What's his point? We'll look again at verse 8. He says, Oh, no one anything except to love each other. He uses this angle of owing someone something because that's what he was talking about. At the end of the previous section, we saw last week, as we talked about uh, respecting, submitting to government, he, he talked about paying taxes and owing honor and respect. So he uses kind of this play on words to make this transition. He says that we shouldn't owe anyone, or rather we shouldn't be indebted to anyone except in this one thing, love. Love is the one debt we all have and we can never repay enough of. This tells us that love is not just a nice thought, something we should be working on. It's something required of us. It is essential to following Jesus. We owe it to one another. We're commanded to love, and to not love people is to sin against them and God. Here's why Paul says we owe love to one another. Look at the end of verse 8. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now, this is a big deal right here. And we need to stop. We need to think about this for a minute. If you've been with us, if you've been paying attention throughout Romans, some of you have, you know that Paul has talked a lot about this law, the law. That word law refers to the Mosaic law. That was the long list of commands and rules that God gave Moses to give to Israel. And we learned that the law was not given to bring salvation because none of us could perfectly keep it. Uh, uh, Jeremy read those verses earlier. It showed us we've all broken God's commands. Therefore, we're under his judgment. That's why we needed Jesus to come and save us. And as followers of Jesus, he said in Romans that we're freed from the slavery to the law. We're no longer bound by the old Mosaic law because Jesus has fulfilled it. 
This is why we don't practice parts of the law like sacrificing animals and avoiding pork and keeping the Sabbath. But we did make an important distinction. We said that, yeah, even though Christ has fulfilled the law, that doesn't mean we just toss out our Old Testament or take down the Ten Commandments from the wall. Because the moral law is still important for us to know and live out. It shows us what God considers to be right and wrong and how he desires for people to live. And as followers of Jesus, we saw that God has given us the Holy Spirit to live in us and to produce in us what the law could not. With the Spirit in us, we're now able to obey God and live in the way he calls us to live. And no, we're not going to be perfect until heaven. But we now have the ability to honor God in the way he always intended So with all that background concerning the law, look again at what Paul says. He says, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. When we love, we do that most basic Christian thing. We're actually fulfilling the Old Testament law. Paul continues to explain it. Look at verse 9. He says, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul picks up here on something that Jesus taught in Matthew 22. You remember the story where the Pharisees came to Jesus? They wanted to trap him. They said, Jesus, what is is the best commandment? What's the greatest commandment in the law? Here's what Jesus said in Matthew 22. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, we got to understand how significant this was for Jesus to say that. Remember, there were tons of laws and rules and commands if you were a Jewish person. And Jesus boiled all of them down to two things. Love God and love people. He said everything else hangs on those two commandments. And Paul's picking up on that here in Romans 13. He lists off four of the Ten Commandments. No adultery, no murder, don't steal, don't covet. Those are the big ones. We know those. Then he says, any other commandment, he says, they're all summed up right here, folks. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's what's at the heart of all these rules and commands. It's not about just following a checklist like, hey, don't kill anybody. Okay, I did good today. I didn't kill anybody. No, the rules are about loving God and loving people. You know, naturally, we don't, we don't like rules very much, do we? Uh, rules feel kind of stiff and binding and boring. We tend to think rules are meant to keep us from having fun and doing what we want. When in reality, rules are given for our good. This is why we give our kids rules. We tell them things like, hey, don't play in the street. Don't put your finger in the light socket. Don't run down the stairs. If my kids were to come to me and say, Dad, you are ruining all our fun because you won't let us play in the middle of 151st Street. I mean, I can't believe how mean you are. I would tell them first, don't talk to me like that. But secondly, you don't understand. I say, look, you, you don't understand. I'm trying to protect you. These, raw, these rules, they're for your good. And God's law is the same way. He's given us these rules as guardrails to protect us. They're for our good. And they aren't just for our good. but They're also for the good of others. That's why Paul says in verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. God's law teaches us how to not wrong our neighbor and to do good to them, to love them. 
And that's a vital part of understanding what real biblical love is. It does no wrong to a neighbor. We hear that word love used in all kinds of ways today. Uh, We say things like, I love my wife. I love God. I love my dog. I love pizza. Amen. And we mean different things to speak of those different kinds of loves. So love gets kind of tossed around a lot. And we also know that our culture has hijacked the word love. They've taken it and distorted it. Most of the time when our culture speaks of the word love, they're talking about romantic love, particularly love as a feeling. We hear this in music. We see it in movies. Love is this bubbly, emotional feeling that you just can't help. Thank you, Elvis. It just happens, right? That's romantic love. It's this desire for someone. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Right? That's part of life. It's a part of relationships as long as we don't confuse that with biblical love. When the Bible speaks of love, it's not talking about a feeling, but rather it's a choice. Let me say that again. Biblical love is not about a feeling, but it's a choice. It's an action that we choose to do for the good of another person. When the Bible talks about God's love for us and our love for one another, it uses this Greek word. If you grew up in church, you've probably heard the word agape. Agape love is unconditional, sacrificial love. This is the kind of love that Jesus displayed on the cross when he died for sinners like me. And that's the kind of love we're called to have for each other. It's recognizing that, hey, feelings come and go. I don't always feel like loving, but I choose to love and to continue to love no matter what. It's not basing love on someone's value or importance or what they have or haven't done. It's not basing it on any condition at all, but rather it's freely given. And feelings are a part of that. Our emotions are not bad. When Jesus looked at people, the Bible says he felt. He felt compassion for them. That's a part of love. We should have affection for one another. But that affection must move us into action and into sacrifice or else it's not biblical love. There's another way today that our culture has distorted love. There's a house in my neighborhood that has a sign in the front of their yard you may have seen around. It's a colorful list of different phrases or slogans, each making a statement about a particular issue. And one of those slogans is this phrase, love is love. I don't know if you're familiar, but this this phrase is one of the taglines of the LGBT movement. It's meant to communicate the belief that love is valid regardless of someone's sexual orientation or gender identity or even number of partners. Essentially, it means that love is however you want to define it. Love is subjective. It's up to each individual person. If you say you love a man or a woman or whoever, then we have to accept that as real love because, well, love is love. That's the idea. But here's the problem with that. And I want to be very respectful in my critique here, lest I be unloving in the way I talk about this. But love is not love. We don't get to define what love is or is not. And any time someone defines a word with the word, you should proceed with caution. The Bible does not say that love is love. It says that God is love. In other words, love comes from him. Love is a part of his being. So therefore, he defines what love is and is not. In fact, we can't even know true love apart from God and through his son, Jesus. So I don't get to define love. 
Regardless of how I feel towards someone, love is not subjective, it's objective. Meaning it has this fixed, unchangeable meaning for all time because it's already been defined and displayed by God. And with that understanding of love comes something really important. To define something as love that is actually harmful for others and sinful is not just wrong, it's blasphemous. To say love is love, though the intent may be to respect people and to be tolerant of differences, is actually harmful to people. That's the irony in the whole thing. To say love is love is actually a very unloving thing to do. 1 Corinthians 13.6 says, Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. So, So listen to me closely here. When something is wrong, when someone is doing wrong and doing something that's hurting them, for us to celebrate that or affirm that, it's not loving. It's unloving. But that's exactly the position our culture wants us to be in. They say that if we don't accept someone else's definition of love, if we don't acknowledge and celebrate homosexual love, for example, then we're being hateful or bigoted. It's because they misunderstand what love is. Look again at verse 10. He says, love does no wrong to a neighbor. So lying to my neighbor, celebrating something that violates God's law, that hurts them, it's not loving my neighbor. And that means as a follower of Jesus, we're put in a really tough spot. We just said we have to speak the truth. If we want to love, we have to tell people the truth because love rejoices with the truth. Yet, the moment we do that, we will be labeled by some as hateful. And today in 2022, in some situations, that's going to be unavoidable. But here's what we can do. We can do our best to model Jesus and speak the truth in a loving way. You know, it's unfortunate that Christians, when it comes to this issue, have often fallen into two ditches here, especially when it comes to speaking about the gay and transgender movement. We've either been jerks or cowards. On one ditch, some have been jerks. They've spoken to people and about people in unkind, unloving, unchristlike ways. And others, some have overcorrected and fallen into the other ditch, and they became cowards, where they fear saying anything at all, lest they might cause offense. What we need is to avoid both ditches here and stay right in the middle. Loving people means speaking the truth, being bold and convictional, yes, but doing so in a kind and gracious way that reflects Jesus. This means caring for the person, wanting to help them know Christ, understanding you too are a sinner, and then also being clear and honest with your words. Friends, this is why this basic command is now more important than maybe ever before. We've got to understand what true biblical love is, what it looks like, and we've got to demonstrate it to a watching world. It's urgent. The truth is at stake. So let me tie up this section for us, and we'll move to the next part. What Paul is saying here is that love, real biblical love, agape love, fulfills the law. That means when we love people in a sacrificial, unconditional, action-oriented, truth-proclaiming, Christ-honoring way, 
We're doing the very thing that God has called us to do all along. His desire with the law, with the rules, with the commands was to help us love him and love others. So rather than going home and making a checklist and working really hard to make sure you don't lie and you don't covet, we're now free to love people. And by doing so, we'll find that we're keeping God's law. It's not that the rules and commands are unimportant. They still tell us what is right and what is wrong. But when we walk in love, when we focus on people and we work for their good, not just our own, we fulfill God's law. That's our first basic command, number one, walk in love. Let's read through now our second section, Romans 13, verses 11 through 14. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Here's the second basic essential command for the Christian life. Number two, walk in holiness. We understand that Christians are called to live a certain way. We talked about the law. We know it's something we learn as kids. You learn things like lying is bad, stealing is bad. Don't do those things. On the flip side, we learn that helping is good. Being nice is good. Do those things. But look, those things aren't unique to Christians. Jewish kids and Muslim kids and non-religious kids learn those same things. Everyone learns to be good and to not be bad. But what makes Christianity unique is the how and the why we should be good and not be bad. And I want to break that down for just a minute, the how and the why of our holiness. First, let's think about the why of our holiness. You see, contrary to every other religion and philosophy in the world today, as Christians, we do not avoid the bad and do the good to earn something. That's the most common way to think of morality. That's most people's why. We should do good things so that we can earn praise from others or earn our place in heaven or honor our family. And we should not do bad things so we avoid punishment or shame or embarrassment or failure. But as Christians, our why is different. We are not good moral people because we need to earn God's love and acceptance. That's what we call legalism. That's a rejection of God's grace in the gospel. And it's unfortunate that even many Christians fall into that trap. Some of us live with this idea of God as if he's holding in one hand a lightning bolt and in the other hand a lollipop. And if you sin and you mess up, oh, you get the lightning bolt. But if you do something good, then oh, you get the lollipop. And they're constantly going back and forth. Listen, that's not the way God is. And that's not the way to live the Christian life. Our motivation to do good things and to avoid bad things is grace. It's grace. It's knowing that we've been saved by Jesus and called to follow him. It's knowing that he died for us, taking our place, paying for our sins, forgiving us. Not because of anything we've done to earn it, but because it's been freely given. See, our salvation is what should motivate us to walk in holiness. And that's what Paul's talking about here. He uses this imagery of nighttime and daytime. It's a common picture in the New Testament. 
You may be familiar with the verses in, in 1 John where it says walking in darkness is like being lost. And when we're saved, when we meet Jesus, it's like someone flips the light on. We walk in the light as he is in the light. That's the image Paul's using here. He says, hey, you know the time. The hour has come for you to wake up. It's go time. The day is here. The night is gone. We've been saved. We've been changed. And we know one day Jesus is coming back and our salvation will be complete. That's why he says, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. He's talking about that future day when Jesus comes back. And this is just basic. He says every day that passes, every moment that passes, we are getting closer and closer to Jesus coming back. I don't know about you, but I'm ready for that. So that means that there should be an urgency to our holiness. We're not just moseying along, taking our time. We may be limping, we may get tired, but we're running towards holiness, longing for Christ to return and be the bride he's called us to be. That's, why, that's our why for living differently, for being holy, for obedience. Our past salvation when we first receive grace and our future salvation when Jesus comes back. That's what motivates us to walk in holiness. Second difference, though, the Christian way of holiness is our how. How do we do it? Well, the only thing the world can offer in the way of being good and being holy is self-effort. All right? The world believes that at its core, everyone is a good person. Everyone has a good heart, and you just need to be loved and accepted and built up and then do your best to live like a good person. And if you struggle at all, you just need to try harder or you just need to accept and love yourself better. This is why every year hundreds of self-help books are published. And guess what? They will write hundreds more next year. (laughs) They don't work. Because we cannot help ourselves be who we're called to be. Here's the Christian how to walking in holiness. Paul says it. Something language he uses a lot. It's put off and put on. Just cast off the works of darkness. Put on the armor of light. In other words, there are certain things we need to get rid of in our lives. We call that repentance, change, to turn away from something. And he gives some examples. He offers these three sets of two vices each. First two words there speak of wild, reckless living and partying. The second set speaks of sexual sin. And and we understand why he would include those things. We, We think of those as big sins. But notice what else he includes. Third set, quarreling and jealousy. Those are what we often think of as small sins. They're not small to Paul, and they're not small to God. See, relational division and fighting and slandering people and putting people down, these two are sins that we have to get rid of. He says, cast them off. That means throw them away. Make no provision for the flesh. In other words, don't give your sinful flesh, which we all have. Don't give your sinful desires, which we all have, any chance. Crush them. Flee from them. Don't allow them to tempt you. So we have to take sin seriously. We have to eliminate it. But that's not all we do. We don't just put off. Here's the part we often miss, and here's what makes Christianity different. We have to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. To put on Jesus is more than just trying and being to be like him, but it's to receive the very power to be like him. To put on Jesus is to have a relationship with him. It's to know and love and trust Jesus more and more so that we might receive more and more of his grace to be like him. That's the how of our holiness. 
And that's where we need to land this plane today. This is the key to the whole thing. The whole thing right here. While these two commands might be basic, can we be honest and admit that they're hard to do? <laughs> Loving people, being holy, that's not easy. But as followers of Jesus, we're not alone in this task. Yes, we have to put forth effort into our obedience, but it's not our power. It's not your strength, but it's Christ in us. We're not just saved by him, but we're sanctified by him too. That means as we go deeper and deeper into the gospel and we learn to trust his salvation more and more, we're changed more and more. We grow more and more and we become like Christ more and more. So God doesn't just give us basic commands and say, good luck. But he also gives us a basic message to change and empower us along the way. That message is the gospel. It's the good news that Jesus saves. That's not something you learn as a kid and move on from. But that message is the key to living the whole Christian life. So yes, go back to the basics. But don't miss the basic truth. Jesus saves and he continues to save you every day. You cannot walk in love. Listen to me. You cannot walk in love. You cannot walk in holiness unless first you walk with Jesus. That's where we start. Receive Christ. Follow him. Then be who he's called you to be. Let's pray.